uh, my colleague, uh, Dr. Richard Dunley, who, who you've heard uh, very briefly so far, uh, has recently completed a PhD at King's College London looking at British naval policy prior to the First World War. His research interests focus on British strategic policy between 1900 and 1918, and he currently works as a contemporary record specialist with us at the National Archives. So both, we're looking forward to your sessions. Thank you so much for that introduction, Clem, and also thank you to Juliet for uh, inviting me along to give this talk. I have to uh, get back to uh, the Chalk Valley because I'm taking part in a debate on Scottish independence tomorrow, uh, which is quite fascinating because it's, it's um, Ming Campbell, Sir Ming Campbell, I should say. It's Sir Simon Jenkins, and it's the Education Secretary, Michael Gove, and then there's me. Now... <laughs> I'd like to think that because I'm the only academic historian amongst them that that gives me some sort of a privileged position, but uh, I don't think many other people will see it that way. Anyhow, today's talk, though, is about the British Empire, intelligence, and the First World War. Now, even though intelligence gathering is considered by many to be the world's second oldest profession, I don't need to go into the first, and England has employed a professional intelligence service since at least the reign of Queen Elizabeth I under Sir Francis Walsingham. It was in the British Empire where intelligence was used to powerful effect. In India, for instance, the English East India Company during the 17th century began paying its servants, and servants means their employees, in order to congregate with and procreate with Indian women. The idea behind this, which and I, I did a paper on this when I was a graduate student. It was sparked by uh, Sir Christopher Bailey's book on intelligence. The whole idea behind it on information gathering was that by living with Indian women, by procreating children with them, you would not only, and because you're supposed to find one and marry them for love, you would not only want to learn more about their culture, which means you would probably learn their language, their languages, but your children would be very versed in both cultures, both languages, and they would serve as important information conduits between the indigenous Indian population and the British, or, and the East India Company. Now to, to probably Britain's Detriment, this was cut out in the late 18th century. But they learned a lesson from it, and that's that information gathering can be very important, and it was incredibly important to the English East India Company. Now, according to Calder Walton, in his brand new book, Empire of Secrets, which I believe just won the History Today prize, uh, book prize for book of the year, quote, it is not an exaggeration to say that in its early years, British intelligence was British imperial intelligence. Right? Now, what he's actually talking about is for the formal establishment of what became MI5, what would become MI6. But you can see it going further into the past, a place that we will now leave in the past and get on to the First World War. But the British needed intelligence 
they needed intelligence to keep control of this far-flung empire. India, the jewel in the crown, was considered the most important, as it had been for a couple of centuries. When it came to the First World War, you see the members of the British Empire, you see the, the peoples of the British Empire playing a massive role. In fact, the Indian army, some one million men strong, played a critical role in helping to conquer much of the Ottoman Empire between 1917 and 1918. Now, it wasn't just India. The UK mobilized enormous armies from the empire as well as the UK, and they deployed them on the continent, in Africa, and in the Middle East. Five million of the seven million troops the British government moved overseas were British and Irish. That's the vast majority, obviously, roughly 70%. But 15% of their fighting force came from India, and the other 15% came from the four main settler colonies, <coughs> also known as the Old Dominions, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and South Africa. The, the, the British relied more on colonial manpower than any of the other belligerents during the war. The British also took advantage of the war to further build their empire, something that U.S. President Roosevelt was very aware of in 1941 when he drew up the Atlantic Charter, signed by Churchill, right, which promised self-government for the colonies following the Second World War. <clears throat> and one of the places where the empire expanded most rapidly following the Great War was in the Middle East, and it was due in no small measure to the humiliation suffered by Britain's imperial forces at the hands of the Turks at both Gallipoli and Kut. Now, the Gallipoli campaign. How can you talk about the British Empire's involvement without talking about Gallipoli? The Gallipoli campaign began in the spring of 1915 as a quick-fix plan to send warships through the Dardanelles and shell the city of Constantinople. The British believed, quite wrongly, that the Ottoman government, government would panic and sue rapidly for peace. Obviously, this didn't happen. The Australian and New Zealand Army Corps, known, today, or known then as well as today as ANZAC, in fact, almost everything you see written about it by someone from the Antipodes just refers to ANZAC. So the ANZAC forces landed at Gallipoli on the 25th of April, 1915. They met fierce resistance from the Ottoman army, commanded by Mustafa Kemal, later known as Ataturk, upon their landing. And although this bold strike is meant to eliminate the Ottomans quickly, the campaign will drag on for eight months and becomes one of the most humiliating defeats of, the, of a British army slash British imperial army in history. Leads to the resignation of Winston Churchill. So at the end of 1915, the Allied forces were evacuated after both sides had suffered heavy casualties. And the Allied casualties included 21,255 from the United Kingdom. An estimated 10,000 soldiers were dead from France, 8,709 from Australia, 2,721 from New Zealand, and 1,358 from British India. And the news of the landing at Gallipoli made a profound impact on Australians and New Zealanders at home, and that's why the 25th of April quickly became the day on which they remembered the sacrifice of those who had died in war. 
The 25th of April remains the Antipodean Remembrance Day to the present. And even after the main British Imperial force had been bogged down at Gallipoli, Britain still thought that the Ottomans were a spent force. They thought, okay, well, we'll get them another way. And in late 1915, Indian army units were sent up the Tigris Valley from Basra, where they were protecting Britain's oil interests in the Persian Gulf, on the assumption that they could quickly capture Baghdad and reverse the shame suffered in Turkey. Instead, 13,000 Indian troops were forced to surrender at the town of Kut in April 1916. The humiliation endured by the British imperial troops was likened at the time to the loss at Yorktown in 1781 to the Americans. This is is bad. Very, very bad. Now, the British public was absolutely outraged by these reverses in the Middle East, as they should have been, and this helped to bring down the Asquith government. After these humiliations, the British government focused itself on exacting revenge against the Ottoman Empire in the Middle East. One British army, properly supplied in the way the Indians were not when they were forced to surrender at Kut, marched up the Tigris into Baghdad in 1917, while another slogged up the coast from Egypt into Palestine. These campaigns against the Ottomans involved nearly one million men. In order to take out the supposed, quote, sick man of Europe, Europe, the British Imperial Army was forced to deploy nearly one-third of the troops used for the entire war effort against the Ottomans. Something that's constantly forgotten as we focus, and I think we rightly put a very powerful focus on the Western Front. There's nothing quite as hellish as that experience, right? But it's still important to remember what was happening in the East. From the Ottomans, the British would take control of Mesopotamia, Syria and Palestine as a result of the First World War, further increasing the size of their formal empire as well as their informal influence. Now, one of the key figures in prosecuting the successful victory over the Ottomans was the Oxford historian, archaeologist, and intelligence officer T.E. Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia. He and his colleagues established the Arab Bureau in Cairo in 1914, pioneering the use of guerrilla warfare against the Ottomans. Lawrence's forces combined intelligence gained from human agents and from signal, signals, signal radio intercepts with aerial reconnaissance <coughs> in order to help defeat the Ottomans. The Arab Bureau had insisted that the British forge an alliance with the local Hashemite dynasty, who could take major responsibility for fighting the central powers in Arabia and not appear as if they were a crusading force. Martin brought up crusades earlier, right? I'm going to bring it up again. The British provided assistance to the Hashemites through both intelligence and irregular warfare. British forces led by Lawrence collaborated with with the Sharif of Mecca, Hussein bin Ali, and waged a series of successful guerrilla attacks on Turkish and German forces in the Sinai Peninsula, conducting diversionary raids on railways and assaults on isolated garrisons. Lawrence stated in the Seven Pillars of Wisdom that guerrilla warfare relied heavily upon accurate intelligence for success. With Lawrence's diversionary hit-and-run tactics, 
these actions siphoned off Ottoman military resources, and the leader of the Egyptian Expeditionary Force, General Edmund Allenby, afterwards won successive victories in Gaza and Beersheba, which ultimately led to the capture of Jerusalem in December 1917. And I think it would be great if we could, you know, see this reenacted with Allenby and Lawrence triumphantly entering the city on foot. Maybe it would be greater if they were holding hands and skipping. I think that would be a nice visual. The first Christian soldiers to capture the city since the Crusades. There's the Crusades again. So, but without a doubt, Lawrence had helped to overturn the humiliations suffered at Gallipoli and at Coote. And it showed that the British Imperial forces had come a very long way with the help of intelligence, very long way since those setbacks in 1915 and 1916. Immediately following the war, some influential Britons began to believe that the Middle East was critical to protecting India, seen as the key to British greatness in the world. Lord Curzon, a former Viceroy of India at the turn of the 20th century and Foreign Secretary between 1919 and 1924, believed wholeheartedly that, quote, as long as we rule India, we are the greatest power in the world. Curzon's position would be rejected by the British cabinet, but even where the British did not fully control sections of the Middle East, their influence was immense. Britain's informal influence, or informal empire, if you will, grew drastically as a result of the First World War. With this influence, though, also came the diplomatic missteps, including the Balfour Declaration, which promised a Jewish homeland in Palestine, thereby providing Zionists with political justification for the eventual establishment of Israel. You can take that as you will. Some people may not see it as a political misstep, all right? But in terms of, in terms of the ongoing <coughs> violence in the Middle East, there's no doubt that a lot, of, a lot of attention is focused on the Balfour Declaration. Now, that was what was happening in the Middle East. What was occurring closer to home? You're wiping your brow. You get a little bit concerned when I mentioned the Balfour Declaration. It's okay. More about you're more concerned about the Middle East. You're more concerned about the Middle East. Oh, so now, 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 now you're now you're you're getting frightened about what I'm going to say about Ireland. Oh, okay. <laughs> Let's see if I can stir the pot a little bit more up here. All right. In the middle of the First World War, as Britain, her armed forces, and those of her imperial territories and allies battled, battled it out on the Western Front and around the world, they were also experiencing massive unrest at home in the form of Irish Republicanism, which was looking to secede from the United Kingdom. This Republicanism threatened the very fabric of what could be considered Britain's first imperial possession, Ireland. In fact, just as an aside, one of the reasons why I, I am an American today is that my family originally left Scotland in the 17th century, was sent over to Ireland as part of the colonization scheme there, then found that obviously that was not where they wanted to be, and so then moved on to North America. One of their greatest enemies was a former ally in the person of the British consul, Sir Roger Casement. His attempts to create an organized and armed insurrection in Ireland with German weapons in order to divert the attention of the British from prosecuting the First World War abroad could have been disastrous for the British war effort. 
But British intelligence, right? uh, but British intelligence helped uncover the plot just, just days before the Easter Rising of 1916. More about Casement. Casement, as I said, was a British consul by profession. He became famous in Britain for his reports and activities against human rights abuses in the Congo through his well-known casement report, as well as in Peru, and for his dealings with Germany before Ireland's Easter Rising. He had been an Irish nationalist in his youth before moving to Africa, where he worked for commercial interests and latterly in the services of the UK. So what changed his mind about the British Empire? Well, the Boer War had a negative influence on him, and his investigations into the atrocities in the Congo, although not carried out by Britain, but by probably one of the most evil men to have ever walked the earth, King Leopold. I don't, I don't think I'm, uh, you know, he gets forgotten. Uh, he gets overshadowed by what comes later. But Leopold is a monster, plain and simple. Absolute monster. Not used to, not used to this. No, sorry. This is the way I always lecture in the United States. They seem to love it. I have tomatoes thrown at me tomorrow at the Chalk Valley History Festival. All right, here we go. All right, so uh, he was also uh, he was also he's horrified by what was happening in the Congo as well as in South American rubber plantations, and this led Casement to begin to adopt a very anti-imperialist attitude as well as ultimately pushing him to Irish republicanism. He sought to obtain German support for a rebellion in Ireland, for the rebellion in Ireland against British rule. Now, the German weapons that he arranged to have shipped were never landed in Ireland. The ship transporting them, a German cargo vessel called the Libau, Libau, I don't know, I've, I've butchered that, was intercepted, even though it had been thoroughly disguised as a Norwegian vessel the Old Nord. All the crew were German soldiers, but their clothes and effects, even the charts and books on the bridge, were Norwegian. But the British had intercepted German communications coming from Washington and knew there was going to be an attempt to land arms, even if the Royal Navy was not precisely aware of the location. The Signals Department of the British Admiralty, codenamed Room 40, successfully intercepted and read many German communications. Their decryption efforts gave the British government intelligence on casement and the shipment of the arms. Of course, another, another one of their famous intercepts, which you've already heard a little bit about, which we're going to hear a little bit more about in a second, was the Zimmerman Telegram in January 1917. That was also Room 40. That was a very active room. <laughs> In which the German foreign minister, Arthur Zimmerman, I, think that, I still think this is hilarious here to this day, offered <laughs> the Mexican government the chance to reclaim land in Texas, New Mexico, and Arizona if they declared war on the United States. And no doubt, as, as Martin pointed out just a few minutes ago, this was a major factor in the U.S. entering the war, war a week later on the side of the British. The armed ship under, under Captain Carl Spindler was eventually apprehended by HMS Bluebell on the late afternoon of Good Friday. Casement came back, though, <coughs> separately. He was not on board the armed ship. He was with a man named Robert Menteith, 
and Sergeant Daniel Beverly of the Irish Brigade in a submarine. Initially, the SMU-20, which developed engine trouble, and then the SMU-19, and they left shortly after the odd sailed. Now, Casement had some major problems <coughs> getting these weapons from Germany. Germany, at first, was not willing to support this. But then they thought, you know what? We'll give him some arms. We'll give, we'll give him what he wants. It can't do any harm in distracting the British a little bit from what's happening on the Western Front. <clears throat> so, Casement was put ashore at Bannastrand on the early morning hours of the 21st of April, 1916. But he was too weak to travel, and he, he was discovered at McKenna's Fort, an ancient ring fort now called Casement's Fort, in Rathenay. He was subsequently arrested on charges of treason, sabotage, and espionage against the Crown. He was taken to the Tower of London, where he was imprisoned, but, but not before he sent word to Dublin about the inadequate German assistance. Casement is put on trial for treason, and he is, he is eventually executed on the 3rd of August, 1916, at the age of 51. What's interesting is that there were many who pleaded for clemency for Casement, including Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who had, who had gotten to know Casement through the work of the Congo Reform Association, the Anglo-Irish poet W.B. Yeats, and the playwright George Bernard Shaw. He, however, did not gain any sort of support from the author Joseph Conrad, whose book A Heart of Darkness is all about what was happening in the Congo, and they knew each other incredibly well. But Conrad, who had a son serving on the Western Front, could not forgive Casement for his treachery. So Casement was hanged 3rd August 1916, age of 51. One of the things that most people know about Casement today are the Black Diaries. Right? And anyone here heard of the Black Diaries? Right? And for a while it was thought that this was all propaganda. That, this is all, that the Black Diaries were British propaganda to smear Casement to try to stop, to try to stop um, or to, in order to prevent any sort of clemency being shown towards him. But what we know now is that the Black Diaries, which graphically outlined his homosexual adventures and pursuits, were 100% authentic. The British didn't have to do anything to them. Right? That's just a nice little quick aside, so you can go look up the Black Diaries when you get on Google in a few minutes. All right. Now, what about India? We talked about the Indian Army, but what about nationalists in India? Well, Indian nationalists during the First World War were detailed, in, were detailed extremely well by Richard Popplewell in his book Intelligence and Imperial Defense in 1995. Popplewell discussed the history of the Ghadar Party, the Revolt Party. This party was a group of Indian nationalists who were operating mainly in Western Canada and the Western United States and operated from the, Edward, the Edwardian period and up to the beginning of World War I and into World War I. The British coordinated during this time with Canadian and American police to keep the Goddard Party under wraps throughout the war, with American officials in particular shutting down the group's newspaper and raiding their offices. There's this, there's this famous scene where 
Like three, uh, three of them are, are arrested. They're on trial. One of them goes into the courtroom, pulls out a gun, and shoots the leader of the Goddard Party. This is one of the other Indian nationalists. Shoots the leader of the Goddard Party in the courtroom, and then a sheriff stands up and shoots him in the head. It, it, this can only play out in a U.S. courtroom. It really could. <laughs> right? But it's kind of a, kind of a final, um, very... Uh, exciting end to the Goddard Party in, in North America. Now, <clears throat> British intelligence believed that the Germans would try to make contact with the Goddard Party in India and perhaps send them weapons through the United States. There were also concerns that Germany would try to stir up a local rebellion in Afghanistan or along the northwest frontier province. None of this happened, and German intelligence during the war proved to be a bit of a joke. Members of Indian intelligence were also sent to France along with the sepoys, along with sepoys. Their mission was to prevent contact between sepoy soldiers and Indian nationalists in Europe. These Indian intelligence officers were run out of the war office, whose papers you can read here, rather than the India office, which is actually good because you can take digital photos in the India office, prevent you from doing so. <laughs> Makes it a lot easier for you to Take it, take it to go. So when the fears of Indian nationalism came to naught, they participated in general wartime espionage, particularly in neutral Sweden. Right? So I was like, okay, well, not much is happening with, with uh, the Indians. They, they, they seem to be on the whole, with the exception of the Goddard Party, behind the war effort. So we'll just redeploy elsewhere. Overall, the main point to take away from imperial espionage and intelligence during the First World War is that the British were by far the most successful at the intelligence game of all the belligerents. Their successes led to the victory of British imperial forces in the Middle East, the capture of German weapons headed for Ireland, the execution of Roger Casement, and the undermining of Indian revolutionaries, helping to keep India on side and fully behind the war effort. Although the intelligence services were substantially cut in the 1920s, the experience they gained through their actions during the First World War prepared them well for the massive intelligence battles that would occur between all major combatants during the Second World War. Thank you very much. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.